So, a uh, story I heard from a uh, shlucha who had a Hebrew school. She did a unit on Rambam. She figured this is something that uh, every Jewish boy and girl should know. So she did a whole unit on the life of the Rambam and the accomplishments of the Rambam. And she got these kids, these are Hebrew school kids, not from such observant homes. And she got them very, very excited about Rambam. So one of the mothers came at pickup time and uh, this eight-year-old girl comes running toward her mother and with great excitement she says, Mommy, Mommy, we learned about the greatest, wisest, most special rabbi. And uh, the mother's just listening and uh, the, the girl says, Rambam. And the mother hasn't heard these words. So she kind of smiles, but doesn't even know what the, you know, what are those sounds? What does Rambam mean? So the Shlucha looks to the mother and says, Maimonides. The little eight-year-old girl says, Mora, he's not just your Maimonides, he's all of our Maimonides. <laughs> <laughs> so she understood. Rambam is all of our Maimonides, whatever Maimonides is. At any rate, Rabbeinu Meisha ben Maimon Hasvardi. What makes him such a unique figure in Jewish history? <clears throat> what makes his contribution something that affects Jewish life to this day? What's the specialty of the Rambam? Why does it say on his matseva, on his tombstone in Tveria, Mimesha ad Meisha, Lekam Kamesha, that from Moshe, meaning Moses, the lawgiver, until Moshe, meaning the Rambam, there was no other like Moshe. There was no, he was peerless. There's no one in his category. What does that mean? So, in honor of the yard site of the Rambam, which is Chof Tevis, Thursday night, we're going to speak a little bit about the Rambam, his life, his works, his accomplishment, his influence. <coughs> and try to uh, gain an appreciation. So we'll start a little bit with uh, the biography. The story of the Rambam begins with his birth on Shabbos of Pesach. That year Pesach was on a Sunday, Matzah Shabbos Sunday. The Rambam was born of Pesach, Yud Dalid. Nissan in the afternoon. It's very unusual, by the way, that we should know the time of birth of a sage. So literally in the hours just before the first Seder, the Rambam was born in Cordoba, Spain, which was a, it was a cosmopolitan city. It was a city of multicultural uh, importance, and it had a thriving Jewish community, including a, uh, a yeshiva, and many, many great scholars, including the Rambam's own father, Reb Maimon, who was himself a great sage, who was the son of a sage, the son of a sage. In fact, if you trace the lineage of the Rambam back, they are all rabbis in every generation, going all the way back to Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, who was the redactor of the Mishnah. Interestingly, we'll talk about this, the role of the Rambam as a codifier in his, and, and as a preserver of Torah Shabal Peh is very similar to that of his ancestor, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi. The Rambam lived in uh, tumultuous times. At that time, Spain became overrun by a Berber tribe of Muslim fundamentalists known as the Almohads, and they were extremely uh, oppressive. Until that time, non-Muslims were able to pay a tax and live as second-class citizens. But the Almohads, they uh, abolished that and they gave the Jews the choice of leaving Spain or being forced by threat of death for, to, to convert, God forbid. So the Rambam and his family, they, they left 
Cordoba, and they began an 11-year period of wandering, basically coinciding with uh, the Ramam's bar mitzvah, about 13 years old, 13 years of age, is when they left Cordoba and they began to wander. Eventually, they settled in Fez, Morocco, which interestingly enough was also under Almohad rule, but for whatever reason, there was a little bit more religious freedom there than in Cordoba. The, uh, the Ramam's family lived there in Morocco, in Fez, for about five years, and then they left for the Holy Land. Their sojourn in the Holy Land was not very long. It was about a half a year. They landed at the port in Akko. They visited the Kaisel in Yerushalayim, where they prayed. They also went to the holy city of Hebron, and they prayed at the Maras HaMachpelah, at the, the cave of Machpelah, where the Oves and Imois are buried. But poverty was intense, and there was really no way to make a living. This was at the time of the Crusades. It was not a free place to live. The, uh, it was a place with, uh, in addition to the poverty, great violence. Maybe we'll mention now, although it doesn't coincide with this period of the Rambam's life, but it's an interesting thing to think about. The Crusaders were Christians from Europe who came ostensibly to liberate the Holy Land. We know how much havoc they wreaked as they went through Europe and destroyed, decimated Jewish communities. Um, one of the leaders of the Crusaders was the King of England, Richard the Lionhearted. Again, I say this story didn't happen at this point where we're up to in the Rambam's life, but I'll mention it since we mentioned the Crusades. Later on, when the Rambam became a physician, and in fact he became the court physician of the Sultan in Egypt, Richard the Lionhearted actually pursued the Rambam to become his personal physician and to return with him to London. And he made great overtures to the Rambam that he should come back to England and live, live in London in the palace. And the Rambam refused. It's just interesting, though, to think about why is it interesting. I'll tell you why it's interesting. Well, to me, why it's interesting. The Rambam wrote most of his works in what language? Arabic, yeah. Why did the Rambam write most of his works in Arabic? Because the Rambam was writing for the masses. He wanted, the Rambam wanted his work to be as accessible as possible. That's why he wrote in Arabic. So imagine if the Rambam had moved to London and lived in London and been the court physician of Richard the Lionhearted, maybe, just maybe, who knows, <laughs> the Rambam would have switched over and started writing in English. And that would have been pretty cool. At any rate, you know, that's uh, alternate timelines, right? Okay. At any rate. So we mentioned the Rambam's family's stay in the Holy Land was very uh, brief, about a half a year. And they went to Egypt where there was a more established Jewish community and uh, more of an opportunity to make a living. First they went to uh, Alexandria, where, where there was a major Jewish community, and then they went to Fostat, otherwise known as Old Cairo, and that is where the Ramam lived out the rest of his years. During that move, or prior to the move to Fostat, Maimon, the Ramam's father, passed away. He'd been the breadwinner and uh, the supporter of the family. And then right after that, there was a very devastating loss that the Ramam's brother, David, David, passed away. He was lost at sea. It was actually, let me pull this up, there was a letter that was discovered in the Cairo Geniza. Cairo Geniza um, 
Agniza is a place where people throw old writings. And uh, the Agniza was discovered in Cairo, and it was a liter literal treasure trove of uh, holy texts. And one of the, the, the writings that was found there was a letter <coughs> that the Rambam wrote <coughs> after the passing of his brother David. So he writes, the great misfortune that has befallen me during my, the greatest, I'm sorry, the greatest misfortune that has befallen me during my entire life, worse than anything else, was the passing of the saint, may his memory be blessed, who drowned in the Indian Ocean, carrying much money belonging to me, to him, and to others, and left me with a little daughter and a widow. Ramam's brother had a daughter and he had a widow. The Ramam was the one who took over the responsibility to support them. And not only did he have to take on the burden of supporting his late brother's family, but as you might have inferred from the, the words we just read, the family business, he doesn't spell it out, but they were dealing in jewels. David was either going to sell jewels or he was buying jewels. And when he was lost at sea, the family's fortune, the entire fortune was wiped out. They lost the, the, the jewels or the money that they had made from selling the jewels either way. And the, the family was completely impoverished. I'll continue to read from the letter. On the day I received that terrible news, I fell ill and remained in bed for about a year, suffering from a rash, fever, and depression, and was almost given up, meaning they almost said that he was going to pass away. About eight years have passed. The Ramam's writing this eight years after his brother passed. About eight years have passed, but I am still mourning and unable to accept consolation. And how should I console myself? He grew up on my knee, he was my brother, and he was my student. So at this point, the Rambam now has the burden of supporting his extended family. We mentioned his father has passed now. Now his brother, who was the businessman, he's passed. He left a widow. He left an orphan. The Rambam refused to take a penny as a rabbi. So he sought an occupation. What occupation? A doctor. A doctor. Like, right? Like all the, all the hospitals, Maimonides hospitals. Okay. Every Jewish mother's dream. Every job. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so he became a doctor, like a good Jewish boy, right? And not only was he a doctor, but apparently a very good one. And his reputation became, uh, became famous until he was brought into the palace as the personal physician of the Sultan. And that is the juncture, what I mentioned earlier, where Richard the Lionhearted of England heard about the Rambam and actually was trying to recruit him and bring him back to London. And that's basically how the Rambam lived. He worked as a doctor. He worked grueling hours. Primarily his Torah study was limited to Shabbos. Shabbos was his respite. He writes about this. The Shabbos was his respite from the people who were coming and going at all times, at all hours. And miraculously, I say miraculously because it's unfathomable how a human being accomplished this. With a computer, I don't know how a human being would accomplish this. Miraculously, during this period of time, forget about the fact that he barely had time to focus, there was a 10-year period where the Rambam was writing what he called Mishnah Torah. Mishnah Torah means the second Torah, or the redoubling of the Torah, or the repetition of the Torah, which we'll explain a little bit later. Famously, we call it Yad Chazaka, the mighty hand. Yad being Yud Dalid, which is the Gematria 14. The Mishnah Torah being comprised of 14 books on all subjects of, of Jewish life and Jewish law. So, the Rambam composed this work. How he composed it, I mean, first of all, the Rambam was drawing from 
the entire body of the recording, the, the recorded Torah Shabal Peh. We mentioned earlier that Yehuda Anasi was the first to record the Torah Shabal Peh. That was the ancestor of the Ramam who recorded the Mishnah. And after the Mishnah, that wasn't enough, so then the Gemara was recorded, and then you have the various different writings of the, of the Ga'inim and of, of, of later generations and their responsa, rabbinical replies, and uh, of course you have the Medrash, and uh, all the different rabbinical works, and it's just a vast, vast, vast sea of, of discussions that don't have a clear conclusion. So simply just the the Bikiyas, meaning the breadth of knowledge that the Rambam had to be able to have all of that information at his fingertips. That's one thing. But then the depth, the depth to be able to synthesize and to pull from this place and from that place and to reach conclusions and to be able to definitively say, this is how the deed is done. This is the actual practical conclusion. This is the halacha. That's also a marvel. And then, to top it all off, <coughs> The organization, the way he structured it, the way that the Rambam put it all together. He organized everything into halachas, into, a, into a logical areas. So if you, if you learn the Talmud, you could have laws about Shabbos in, in, in a tractate about Pesach. Or, or, or laws about uh, sacrifices in a, in, a, in a tractate about business. So to put it all together and organize it, and not only did he organize it, this is another thing he did. Not only did he organize it, but it's a sequence, it builds. As the Rebbe pointed out many times, when the Rebbe would analyze in depth different passages from the Rambam, the Rambam relies on the student to know things that he's written in earlier chapters. In other words, it's not just that it's organized well, it's organized in order, in a sequence, and it builds one thing on top of the other until the entire work culminates with Mashiach, with the, with the, the conclusion of everything. So that when you look at the Ramam, you see how he starts from the very beginning, from the very basics, the, the, the knowledge of God as the true existence, and he builds and builds and builds, and he ends up with Mashiach, with a perfected reality. And, and, and you don't even have to be a scholar, you just look at the Rambam. Obviously, if you're a scholar, then it's even more of a marvel, but it, it, so, so the scholars tell me. But if you, you look at the Rambam, and you're just blown away by how structured and organized and, and logical this massive amount of information has been put together. And like I said, the Raman did this without a computer. He did this while he was, this wasn't his day job. He did this while he was essentially in exile and supporting a family, an extended family. So it's just, it's just unreal. Um, of course, Mishnah Torah is not the only work of the Rambam. We mentioned that the, most of the Rambam's works were in Arabic. Should just mention the 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 the, the, the Rambam wrote a Pirish Mishnayis, a commentary on Mishnah that was in Arabic. He wrote um, the Mura Navuchim later in life. Mura Navuchim was a later work that was also the Guide to the Perplexed that was also in Arabic. Um, but the Mishnah Torah was not in Arabic. It was written rather in Mishnayic Hebrew. Why Mishnayic Hebrew? There's different styles of Hebrew because. Mishnah Torah is supposed to be, even though it's not Arabic, it's not the vernacular, it's not the regular language people use in day-to-day -day business, but it's meant to be accessible to everyone. And Mishnayic Hebrew, specifically Mishnayic Hebrew, is the most accessible Hebrew, the easiest, the clearest uh, form of Hebrew. So that's why he wrote it that way. He wanted this book to be accessible to everyone. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, Amir Tzashem. Um, I just want to wrap up the biography. In uh, <coughs> 4965, at the age of 69, less than a few months short of his 70th, 70th birthday, we'll talk about that later also, Mir uh, the Rambam passed away on Chof 
Tevis, the 20th of the month of Tevis. And it was agreed that he would be interred in the Holy Land. There's an interesting story told about why, of all places in the Holy Land, why is the Ramam buried in Tveria? The Ramam is buried in Tveria, in Tiberias, which is in the Galilee region. Actually right there on the Kinneret, on the Sea of the Galilee. So how did that happen? How did that come to pass? They uh, were carrying the coffin on a camel back. And when they entered the land of Israel, the camel just started bolting. And everyone was chasing after it. And it didn't stop until it came to Tveria. It kneeled down, and they took that as a sign from heaven. And that's where the Ramam is buried. Now, I'll mention to you, it's interesting. When the Rambam talks about, in, there's a few places in the Rambam where he gives us a little bit of history, where history is applicable to halacha or relevant to halacha. So the Rambam talks about the different places where the Sanhedrin was located. They had to abandon Yerushalayim prior to the destruction of the Second Temple. The last place where the Sanhedrin, where the Bezdin Agodl, where they the last place where there was a ruling central authority for Torah law for the entire Jewish people was where? Want to guess? Go ahead, guess. Tveria. <laughs> so there's a, there's a tradition. The Medrash says that Mashiach will first be revealed in Tveria. And just like the last time the Sanhedrin convened was in Tveria, the first time it will convene again after the coming of Mashiach will be in Tveria, and then it will move to Yerushalayim, to the Beis HaMikdash, to the rebuilt Third Temple. So if indeed the Sanhedrin reconvenes in Tveria, they'll be able to recruit local talent. Because the Rambam's right there already. Um, just a, a couple more things about the, the greatness of the Rambam and, and the unparalleled way that, that the Rambam is described. The Rambam may be, historically speaking, the only person who is specifically individually named in any version of the Kaddish. That's, that's making the big time, huh? To be mentioned by name in the Kaddish. Because of what he did for the Yemenite community. We know about the Igeris Taman the letters of support that the, the Rambam gave to the Yemenite community when they were dealing with persecution. Um, it wasn't just that he gave them support, which he did, which was extremely important. He also worked behind the scenes. This part is probably not as well known, um, but not only did he give them religious instruction, he also worked as an Askan, as an activist, and uh, apparently raised money and Call it a bribe, call it a payoff, call it whatever you want to, but he made sure that things should be easier for the Jews in, in, in Yemen. And they used to mention him specifically in the Kaddish, the second line of the Kaddish. They used to say, that Mashiach should come. Not just in our days, but in the days of our rabbi, Moshe ben Maimon. And how do we know this? Because the Rambam had, maybe we don't know this, we should, uh, should mention, detractors. There were people who were against the Rambam. And not only in his lifetime, but even after his lifetime. And one of his supporters was the Ramban, Nachmanides. There's a letter that the Ramban wrote to the sages of France explaining or defending the Rambam. And over there, Nachmanides writes and says, you don't know who this, who this rabbi is. In Yemen, during his lifetime, they used to say, in Kaddish, the Mashiach should come, well, in the, in the lifetime of the Rambam. So that's how we know that, that tidbit of history. Because somebody asked me, actually, did the Yemenites still say that? Apparently, they, they stopped saying it after the passing of the Rambam, but... This was something that they said, and it was a known thing, and the Ramban himself, the Ramban, not the Ramban, the Ramban, Nachmanides, Meshe ben Nachman, wrote about. Okay. 
Um, another thing about the Rambam, about his greatness, his unique greatness. We mentioned before that he was a descendant of Yehuda Hanasi. You go back, you know who Yehuda Hanasi is, is, is descended from? From which uh, biblical uh, persona? It's from the house of David. It's from David Amalek, King David. So the Ruzhener, Rabbi Yisrael Ruzhener, the Ruzhener Tzaddik, he says that the Rambam was Mashiach of his generation. He was, just like the Rambam himself writes, that Mashiach has to be a descendant of King David, who is a Torah scholar, and one who fights on behalf of the Jewish people and brings them back to observance and strengthens Judaism. So the Ruzhener says the Rambam was Mashiach in his generation. And that's why he was preparing us for Mashiach by writing practical laws that weren't applicable at that time. In the Rambam, he doesn't just cover the laws that we practice in Gullus, in exile, but even the laws that are only applicable when the, when the Besamekdush, when the temple is standing. So the Rishna says he was preparing the world to be able to observe these halachas. It's sort of like they say about the Chofetz Chaim, they used to have the bag packed. When Mashiach comes, but he couldn't be Mashiach because he was a kain. But the Rambam was a descendant of David. He could have been Mashiach. He was preparing the world for <coughs> Mashiach. He himself could have been Mashiach. Uh, another thing about the Rambam. We said, There was no one, no one else like him. Maybe Moshe Rabbeinu himself, right? So the Chidah, the great Sephardic sage, Chidah of Yerushalayim, wrote a sefer called Shem Hagdolim, the name of the greats, and there are many biographies in this compendium. And the Chido, I'm saying the source because the story is a marvelous story, and without a source, you would think it's uh, apocryphal. There are many apoc apocryphal stories of the Rambam. And by the way, when preparing tonight's lecture, I made a decision, I'm not going to tell any of the apocryphal legends. There are a lot of cute stories, interesting stories about the Rambam, which are more legends, and I opted not to tell any of those. Um, but the Chidot, who we can rely upon, he writes that after the 10 years of, of, of slaving away at the Mishnah Torah, when the Ramam finally completed his work, he looked up and he saw his father. Now remember, we mentioned his father passed away when, before they came to Fostat. So his father was already in Ulama Emes. He was already in the world of truth. His father was visiting him from the, world, from the other world. <clears throat> he saw his father. And next to his father, he saw a stranger who looked very saintly, but he didn't know who he was. And his father, Rav Maimon, says to his son, the Rambam, I've come from the other world and I brought with me Moshe Rabbeinu, he heard about your work and he would like to look it over. And Moshe Rabbeinu looked through the Yad HaZokah, the Mishnah Torah, and he says, Yasha Koyach, good job. So if you want to know who wrote the rabbinical Haskama, didn't write it, but it, oral contract, who gave his approbation to the Mishnah Torah, none other than Moshe Rabbeinu, the Chidav writes. Another thing we say about the Rambam, the Rambam was the Neshera Gadol. He's described as the Neshera Gadol. What is the Neshera Gadol? The great eagle. It's a funny thing to call a rabbi. Why would you call a rabbi an eagle? You know, sometimes we, we, we describe, uh, you know, strong like a lion, swift like a deer. What's, what's the eagle thing? So, as we mentioned before, what was the genius of the Rambam in compiling Mishnah Torah? It was the ability to take in this infinite sea of oral law, to see all of it, to be able to have his mind wrapped around such vast, more than vast, unending volumes of information, and then to be able to con concisely put it together in an organized fashion. Now, to be able to do that, to be able to do that, you have to be able to see the big picture. So what is a nesha? What's an eagle? The eagle flies high and he has incredibly good vision, like an eagle eye. 
So the Rambam is known as the Neshragadol because he was uniquely able to see all of Teir Shabal Peh at one glance, like an eagle who flies high and he sees everything laid out in front of him with precision, with sharp vision. That's also what it means when the Rambam writes at the beginning of Mishnah Torah, he writes, he, he brings a, a verse from Kapitel Kufiotes, from chapter 119 of Tehillim, Oz then I will no longer be ashamed when I glance at or I gaze upon all of your mitzvahs. What does that mean? Then I will no longer be ashamed when I glance at or I gaze upon all of your mitzvahs. That the Rambam is giving over the eagle eye view to us. Not just that the Nesheragadu can see it all in one glance, but he gave it to regular people like us that through Mishnah Torah we will no longer be ashamed because then we will be able to see all the mitzvahs at a glance. Now, is it at a glance? Can you learn Mishnah Torah in one second? Like, like you look at a picture and you can see it in one second? No. But you can learn it in a year. How do I know you can learn it in a year? <laughs> because the Rebbe started the Rambam campaign, the daily Rambam. The Rebbe started in 1984, the first Siyam was in 1985, and it's a yearly cycle of learning the entire Mishnah Torah by learning three chapters a day. Or there's another track where you can learn one chapter a day, so you finish it every three years. But the point is that if it wouldn't be that the Neshragadu flew up that high and was able to see it all in one glance and then put it together in a form that we can relate to, then there would be no possibility. There would be no possibility. Then we would be ashamed because we would say, there's this great Torah and it's full of mitzvahs, but how do you find them? How do you know what they are? Can you imagine how Judaism would be different if not for the Rambam? We literally we, we wouldn't know what to do. We wouldn't be able to make a move. We wouldn't know how to function. But the Rambam flew up high like an eagle, saw it all at once, and then gave over what he saw. So that every one of us, and like I mentioned before, the Rambam wrote his work not just for scholars, although there's so much depth in it, the greatest scholars toil studying the Rambam. But at the same time, it's written in such a clear fashion, such an organized fashion, such a simple language, that regular laymen also benefit from study of the Rambam. So that's, that's the gift that the Rambam gave us. Okay. Maybe I'll mention one more thing, just about the uniqueness, how the Rambam is described. Many people have heard of the Rogachover Goin, the genius of Rogachov. He was Yosef Rosen. So he was uh, an incredible Talmudic mind, um, incredible uh, bikias. His knowledge, his, his, his breadth was like a computer. He knew everything he could immediately call to mind. Um, but his favorite study, in fact, what he spent most of his time with was Rambam. He was constantly studying Rambam. They say that when he went to the chuppah, they had to drag him away from a Rambam. He was learning Rambam, and he kissed the Rambam, and he says, I'll be back to you. I'll come back. Don't worry. I'll come back. <laughs> and sometimes the Rogachover would be learning Rambam, and he would get so excited because of something that Rambam said, or the way that I'm going to put or like I mentioned before, a lot of what's really marvelous about Rambam is the organization, like where he put something. Um, and, and again, the greater scholar you are, the more enjoyment you have because you realize what's going on, what the Rambam's doing. Sometimes the Rogachover will be learning Rambam and he would get so excited, he would have such pleasure, and he would say, I Rebbe, he would call the Rambam Rebbe. He lived 800 years after the Rambam, but he called, he called the Rambam Rebbe. That, that was his teacher. He says, I Rebbe, long do Leben. You should live long. Because for the Rogachover, the Rambam was alive. The Rambam was his teacher. The Rambam was his way of Judaism, of Torah coming alive. Okay. So that's, that's background. Now what I want to tell you is a little bit the few-step process, but it's for understanding perhaps a little bit more why the Rambam continues to be so important to us. And that the, I'll put it this way, the farther away we get from the time when the Rambam lived, the more important he becomes. Yeah? 
sounds like a little bit of a paradox, but the, the, the farther away in history we get from the, from the Rambam's lifetime, the more important of a figure the Rambam becomes. So I'll explain. The Rambam's uh, yard site, like we mentioned, is Chof Tevis, the 20th of Tevis. In Toshinun Base, 1992, it was the same Kvias, it was the same calendar set up as this year. And that meant that Chof Tevis was a Thursday night Friday, an air of Shabbos. So that Shabbos, following the Rambam's yard site, meaning Chof Aleph, 21 Tevis, there was a Fabrengen for Shabbos Shmois. And the Rebbe spoke about the fact that the Rambam's Yorzeit had been the previous day, had been Erev Shabbos. And what's the connection between the Rambam and his Yorzeit and Shabbos Parshas Shmois? Okay. Shmois, as we know, is the first Parsha of the second book of the five books. Shmois means names. The Eile Shmois, these are the names of B'nai Yisrael, the Jewish people. Haboyim Mitzrayma, who entered Egypt. Okay. So the Medrash, Medrash Rabbah, on this verse says something very interesting. It says, Al Shem Geulas Yisrael Nizkru Khan. In reference to the redemption of the Jewish people, these names are listed here. And then it goes on, and it explains how each of the tribes, each of the names of the tribes, meaning the list of names that came into Egypt, how they're all uh, homiletically connected to redemption. But the Rebbe asks a very simple question. Hold on a second. I get that on a level of drush, of homiletics, what the Madrash is doing. But on a very simple level, the verse says, these are the names of the Jews who went into Egypt, who went into exile. And then the Medrash is saying, from this verse, based on this verse, that al-shem ha-gu'ula, al-shem gu'ula s'yisrael nizkru kan, kan means here, on this verse. This verse is presenting the redemption. This verse isn't presenting the redemption, it's presenting the opposite of redemption. It's presenting the exile. The Jews went down into Egypt, that was their exile, that was, that was their servitude, their slavery. Simple question. So the answer is like this. Erev Shabbos. Erev Shabbos. You have to understand what is Erev Shabbos. Chazal, our sages tell us that he who toils on Erev Shabbos will eat on Shabbos. So that Erev Shabbos isn't just the day before Shabbos. Erev Shabbos is our preparation and really that which enables us to have Shabbos. Now what does that mean? In a certain way, exile and redemption are like Erev Shabbos and Shabbos. So that the exile itself, it doesn't just precede redemption. Exile is part and parcel of, and, and actually essential to, the process of redemption. And where do we see this? On the event that happens this year, Erev Shabbos, Chof Tevis, the, the Rambam's yard site. How do we see this in, in relation to, how do we see the idea that the exile itself is part and parcel of the redemption process? We see it in the Rambam. How do we see it in the Rambam? Do you know there are, I believe, 80,000 verses in the Torah and there's only one place where you will find the Rosh Tevis, the acronym of the Rambam's name. There's only one place where you will find four words in a row where the first letter <coughs> is Resh, the, second letter, the, the, sec the first word of the first word, first letter of the first word is Resh, the first letter of the second word is Mem, the first letter of the third word is Base, and the first letter of the fourth word is Amem. The only place you will find it is in Parshas Bay, where it says Hashem is bringing the plagues to Egypt. He's smiting Pharaoh, Laman, in order to what? Revise Meifsai Be'eretz Mitzrayim. 
to multiply my wonders in the land of Egypt. So where's the one place in the entire Torah where you find the acronym of the Rambam's name in a verse that says, to multiply my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now on a simple level, that's very obvious how that fits. How does that fit? The Rambam accomplished a superhuman feat, a wonder of Hashem, where? In Mitzrayim, in Egypt. So, to increase my wonders in the land of Egypt, that's the Rambam, writing Mishnah Torah in the land of Egypt. Okay. That's a simple level. That's obvious to everyone. Now, on a deeper level, Mitzrayim doesn't just mean the country. As we know, Mitzrayim is, a, is an archetype. Mitzrayim is emblematic, representative of all exile. The Rambam wrote Mishnah Torah as a response to a spiritual crisis. We mentioned earlier that he, like his ancestor, Rabbi Huda Nasi, stood up at a time and he took action. And like the Rambam says in his Hagdama, in his preface to Mishnah Torah, Kedei Shaloi Tishtakach Torah Shebalpeh Misro. I did this work in order that the oral tradition should not be forgotten from the Jewish people. In other words, if I had not taken this action, the oral tradition would have been lost. Would have been lost from the Jewish people. So the Rambam was acting at a time of exile, real exile, where the Jewish people were in danger of losing, God forbid, of losing the oral tradition. So he didn't just work in literal Egypt, the land of Egypt, but in everything that Egypt, that Mitzrayim represents. Mitzrayim also, as we know, is Meitzarim, limitations, meaning the strictures of exile, being in situations that, 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 that cause our spirituality to be put in check. So the Rambam is functioning and giving clarity to his generation and subsequently to all generations at a time of spiritual crisis. And then what does he do? Not only does he preserve the oral law to save it from being forgotten, but he then he goes ahead and he includes in his compendium laws that will only be applicable when Mashiach comes. And then on top of that, not only does he describe in detail the particulars of the laws that will only be observed in the times of Mashiach, at the very end, what does he do? He gives us the laws about Mashiach, the laws of Mashiach. There are laws of Mashiach. Who is Mashiach? Who can be Mashiach? What does it mean? How do we know Mashiach is here? So the Rambam is writing at a time of the deepest, darkest exile, real Mitzrayim and proverbial Mitzrayim. And what is he doing? He's giving Mashiach to the people. So in exile, he is already bringing us to a level of redemption. He's preparing us for Shabbos during Erev Shabbos. Now, it gets better. We know there's a famous Mishnah. Most of us know it because it's in the Maxwell House Haggadah every year. It doesn't have to be Maxwell House, but that's the classic. It says, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah said, I was like a 70-year-old man. Why does he say like a 70-year-old man? He turned white. He, his beard turned white. That's what happened to me. Yeah, I told my wife, I'm doing scholar in residence in five towns, and my beard turned white. You should see pictures of me before I moved here. It wasn't like this. <laughs> Whatever it does, it looked, it's very, very distinguished. It looks good. So, Allah ibn Azariah, he was appointed to be Nasi. Nasi means the leader of the Jewish people. His wife said, look at you, you have a dark beard. So the next day, he got the white beard, and he looked like a 70-year-old. So he says, I was like a 70-year-old man. I became Nasi, and I couldn't convince the sages. What was his dispute with the sages? Do you remember? 
to, to mention Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim Belelois at night. See, we have a, a mitzvah to mention going out of Egypt at, in the daytime and in the nighttime. That's why we say it twice a day. We say it as part of Shema. Not just in the daytime, but also in the nighttime. We have a daytime Shema and a nighttime Shema. So he says, I didn't convince the sages that we need to mention going out of Egypt at nighttime until that day where I became Nasi. It happened on that very day. Ben Zayma came and gave a supporting argument. So the Rebbe says like this. Who is a Nasi? Who is a true Nasi? A leader of the Jewish people. Okay, so he is Nasi, which is from the word Ram Venisa. He's uplifted, but he's not just uplifted. He lifts you up. Right, like we were talking about before, it's not just the eagle flying around and he sees everything, he gets you to see it too. So Allah ben Azariah, what did he do? He convinced the sages and subsequently, or through that, he gave this ruling to the entire Jewish people that yeah, yeah, you do talk about redemption uh, even belay lice, even at night. You understand? At night. During the darkness of exile, we do look forward to Mashiach. And not only do we look forward to Mashiach, but like the rest of that Mishnah says, kol all the days of your life, lahav to bring the days of Mashiach, even the days of exile. So that whole story there about Allah ben Azariah is a story about the assertion that a Nasi, that a true Jewish leader, has to be already preparing his people for redemption even when they are in exile. Again, Erev Shabbos doesn't just precede Shabbos. Erev Shabbos creates the Shabbos, leads us to Shabbos, makes Shabbos possible. Let's go a little deeper. And how old was Allah ben Azariah when he took this leadership position and he made it his mission statement to tell the Jewish people that in exile, in the night of exile, we're already going to mention redemption? How old was he? Or how old was he like? 70. 70. What is 70? 70 is a lot of things. First of all, 70 is considered to be like a regular lifespan. Right? Like, like David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Yemei Shnois of Bohem Shiv Mishana. Lifespan 70 years. Okay. Modern medicine made it a lot better, but in the old days. So Chassidus explains, Bohem, Bohem, in them, in the years of the life, is like the word Behemoth animal. That the animal soul has seven emotional faculties. And those seven emotional faculties have ten sub-faculties within them. So you have a lifetime to perfect the 70 facets of the animal soul. Like sort of like during Sphira, we do the seven weeks, seven days, seven weeks. But this is more because you're doing not just the seven of the seven, you're doing the ten out of the seven, the, the, the moichen and the, the middays of the seven, and you're reaching complete refinement. So 70 means personal refinement. 70 means the 70 nations, right? The, 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 the mushal, the, the Jewish people are like a wolf, like, like a lamb surrounded by 70 wolves. 70 wolves, why the number 70? 70 nations. If you look in the genealogy in Parshish Noyach, it talks about 70 proto-nations. So 70 nations represents the exile, because exile is an exile among the nations. So we refine the 70 traits within ourselves, and then we refine the world at large, and we do this with the strength of the 70 souls that went down into Egypt, and then we have 70, which is the letter Ayin, which is the big Ayin of Shema, Shema means to listen, but ayin means an eye which sees. Then what happens is after we refine ourselves and we refine the world around us, then we see godliness all over. That's Mashiach. Okay. So, you following so far? This is, this is the coup de grace. If you were listening all along, how long, for how many years, to what age, did the Rambam live? Did anyone hear what I said earlier? Anyone remember? What? Just short of 70. Okay. The Ramam was born when? This is how I started. Erev Pesach. Erev Pesach. Yud Dalid Nisan. 14th of Nisan. He passed away when? Chof Tevis. 20 Tevis. If he would have lived until 
14 Nisan, meaning just another few months, he would have lived till his 70th birthday. How many days short of his 70th birthday did he pass away? It was a little less than a few months. If you count the days from the 20th of Tavis until the 14th of Nisan. By the way, this is why you need to use the footnotes when you learn Lakut Sichas or Sefer Sichas, because this bombshell is relegated to a footnote in Sefer Sichas Toshinun Base. Tell you, anyone else would come up with this, they would, make, they would write a whole Sefer about this one thing. It's one little footnote. The Rambam passed away. 83 days short of his 70th birthday. Remember that number, 83. Mishnah Torah is famously associated with what number 14? The Yad, Yodalit. That's how many volumes. But the volumes are broken down into halachas, different subjects. If you go to the very end of the Rambam, after the laws of Mashiach, the Rambam says, we just finished all 14 books, which contain how many halachas, how many subjects, Want to guess? 83. 83. So, the Rambam's life, plus life's work, meaning the, the days of his life, plus the 83 halachas of Mishnah Torah, make a perfect 70 years. Wow. Which is the idea of Allah ben Azariah, a true Nasi, a true leader. And what is a true leader? The one who begins to prepare the Jewish people for redemption even while in the night of exile. The one who starts letting us taste Shabbos while it's still out of Shabbos. So by learning Rambam, especially if you learn the one chapter or the three chapters a day, or the track of learning Sefer HaMitzvahs daily, and thereby learning it together with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews all over the world. By learning Rambam, we begin to experience Mashiach before the redemption. We begin, first of all, to study laws that are not in Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, not even in the big Shulchan Aruch. We start learning things that we're only going to be able to practice when Mashiach comes. But also, we start to experience that ayin, that 70, which is ayin, which is the eye. Which eye? The eagle eye. They can see the achdus of Torah, the oneness of it all. We can't fly up there, but the Rambam flew up there and he showed us what he saw. And when we learn Mishnah Torah, we tap into that oneness of all of Torah. We tap into that ability to see the marvel of it. How organically one, every halacha and every subject in Torah really is. Which that itself, what's Mashiach? Mashiach is when the whole world will look together and will see godliness. Maybe immediately.